you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. Today we have the one and only Gabby Dunn on the show. Gabby is a writer, actor, journalist, comedian, activist, and podcaster. Most of you may know Gabby from her first book, I Hate Everyone But You, her YouTube comedy show, Just Between Us, or her money podcast called Bad With Money. Today, Gabby joins us to talk about a number of things, including her new book called Bad With Money. We talk about the financial struggles of marginalized communities, the financial struggles that aren't abated by being internet famous, and the limiting beliefs our community has about money that makes us struggle so hard with it. Oh, and we have a special guest appearance with Gabby's dog, so that's fun. Before we get started, this episode of Queer Money is being brought to you by the Debt Free Guys credit card payoff course, which is available for purchase next week, starting January 13th, and will only be available for purchase through January 21st. So don't miss your chance to get the step-by-step strategy that helped us pay off $51,000 in credit card debt and saved others countless amounts of money to pay off their debt too. One person went through our strategy, saved $150 a month, and up to $2,250 total to pay off her debt faster than she ever expected. So now on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. So welcome to the internet famous Gabby Dunn. Thank you for joining us on Queer Money. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. I think that means absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll we'll dig into that a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, we're very excited to have you on our podcast. I don't know, at this point, maybe it was about a year ago, your team had reached out to us uh, Mm -hmm. in preparation for a book you have coming out and you interviewed us for that book and we've been paying close attention ever since and we can't wait to see it come out and we'll talk more about that as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys, I was going to mention, you guys are are in the book a little bit, especially because I don't know of any other, I don't really know a lot of like queer specific money shows other than like ours and, and Susie Orman's queer, but you know, that's not exactly what she's talking about all the time. So, right. or ever. So yeah. So I had looked you guys up when I I had Googled queer money podcast, literally. So you guys have really good SEO to be like, am I the only one? And then I found you guys. Nice. Yeah, yeah I guess our SEO is finally working after all these years. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> well, I think probably about three people a month search for queer money podcast. So. I know. I know. <laughs> but they find us and that's what matters. Right. right? Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I guess, you know, one of the exciting things is we attend FinCon every year, which is the kind of the media place for where bloggers and media and financial services companies come together. And this year was the first year we actually had a group of a queer meetup. So there was enough people there to instigate. A, right. So there are more of us fighting for a financially strong queer community, which is great to hear. <laughs> Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, that is really that is really good to hear. I remember you guys telling me for the book that like that it, it used to just be you two, basically. Yeah. 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 For a while, we were felt like we were in a silo, but <laughs> people are starting to branch out. So it's awesome because we can't have too many people talking about financial security and financial independence, um, which is part of why we're excited to have you on the podcast today. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's it, it's always 
nice to take things from a more specific lens rather than like the generic money advice that I think can be very alienating to people and can seem sort of unreachable because I think it's only taking into account like a small percentage of the population, basically. Right. Yeah, exactly. So often, especially I think for LGBT people, we don't see ourselves in the marketing and the collateral. And so it's almost kind of hard to, to identify with that. We don't all dream of walking down the beach with our golden retriever mm-hmm. with our opposite sex white spouse. <laughs> no? Yeah, oh, we don't. I'm forward to golfing, you guys. I've been promised golf. And... I've been promised golf. And I better get golf. <laughs> and a gold lame tracksuit. Uh, well, now that I don't think I would balk at. <laughs> you can't have enough gold lame. <laughs> so I want to take a, a little dive back and start back from the beginning. So you sort of started your career at BuzzFeed and then you sort of blew up on, on YouTube with your YouTube show. And then now you're into book writing. Uh, you had a great book that went popular. And now you have a podcast and you have another book coming out. So it just seems like your Gabby Dunn is everywhere, especially if you're watching Instagram. Gabby Dunn is everywhere. So what is it like to be internet famous? Well, I was already doing some writing when I started at, so like we had the YouTube channel when I started at BuzzFeed and then I had already been, I had had a blog that was popular and I had already kind of been like an internet-y person, sort of always, but it is not financially stable. Like it's basically freelancing to be internet famous (laughs) because you, you're like at the mercy of like brands that want to sponsor you or don't want to sponsor you you know, it's, it's, you're at the mercy of how, how well your video did. There's no like steady income, you know what I mean? Unless you work for a company. So it's weird because you're so visible. Um, so like people are seeing you all the time and in the, maybe at one point in entertainment history, uh, (laughs) if people were seeing you all the time, it meant that you were wealthy because there were four TV channels, (laughs) (laughs) but now it's like, it's like they can see you all the time and you can make no money for that. And, you know, places use my image over and over again. So like maybe I got paid a one-time fee from a company, but then they reuse my image, you know, over and over again in their marketing materials or whatever. And I don't get paid every time that happens. Right. So it's interesting because like, I think like my fan base didn't really know that. And YouTube fans didn't really know that. As much until I wrote this article called Get Rich or Die Blogging, which is sort of what launched my career as a finance person, because the article was just basically like, hey, guys, like, why are we all pretending to be wealthy? We're all like all these YouTubers have day jobs and are struggling and we like only show the best parts of our lives and we don't show like what actually goes into it. And that makes our fans resentful when we have ads. But really, the ads are what's keeping us like afloat. Like, you know, people would get angry when after 200 free videos, Allison and I, my my YouTube partner, would post a a branded spot. And they'd be like, oh, okay, you guys are rich. You don't need to do this. But then once I wrote that article, people were like, oh, you're not rich. Like all of the stuff you do every week is for free. You've made 200 videos for free, which is like asking a dentist to do 200 teeth cleanings for free. And then getting mad when he gets paid for one. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep, exactly. Oh, Funny boy, do we know. All of it's super annoying. And then, you know, friends of mine in the article, I talked to friends of mine who work at restaurants and are internet famous and they get, you know, they get recognized at their job. And like, how awkward is that? And 
you know, one of my friends was a featured player at BuzzFeed, but also had to work as a caterer at BuzzFeed's Golden Globes party because BuzzFeed wasn't paying her enough. Oh, oh wow. Yep. <laughs> How did well, her boss feel about that or his boss feel about that? <laughs> her boss at the at the restaurant? Uh, at, at BuzzFeed. <laughs> oh, he doesn't give a fuck. He doesn't give a shit. He's a <laughs> he doesn't care at all. But anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so it was, I mean, he cares in so much as how it makes the company look, but he doesn't actually care about people. But anyway, so, so yeah, so it is like this sort of thing where there's a, uh, there was a miss misinformation like between the fans and the creators and like I think now we're getting further away from that where the fans do understand the creators better and like the creators are able to be more honest and that's great yeah I think so often there, there's been this perception that if you've got this amazing YouTube channel and it's glossy looking and you're producing content all the time that this is what you do full-time and that's right. all your income and, and you must be wealthy if you've got 1.7 million followers per video and it doesn't necessarily right. equate that way and especially for the LGBTQ community, there's been a lot of demonetization of of our stuff. So if something, you know, has even like the word bisexual in the title or if something is about, you know, uh, initially a lot of LGBTQ stuff, especially trans stuff, is demonetized. Meaning like you can appeal if you have a certain amount of followers, but by the time it's reinstated, you may have lost money on the initial views. Right. And they haven't really done anything to fix that, even though they constantly say they're going to. And I've gotten into it with them because they'll email me and be like, hi, we want to give you like a partner, you know, like a, someone directly to talk to at YouTube for your channel. And I've written back multiple times. I don't want a, like a YouTube partner. I want you guys to fix the LGBTQ stuff. That's the only thing I care about. And if you and until you fix it, I see no reason to talk to you guys. And they're yes. like and then they try to like, you know. They write, they write back. They try to connect me with someone. I tell them the last person I talked to's name. They say, oh, okay, we didn't know, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. It's just like very – It's a circle. It's a circle. So have they ever explained to you why they demonetize the LGBTQ stuff? Well, they demonetize a lot of stuff that they deem uh, not advertiser-friendly. So like I, I got a breast reduction recently and I – made a video about it, a medical procedure talking about my breast reduction and like what, you know, what you do to prep and what the surgery was like and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it was initially demonetized because it had the word breast in it, even though it was a, a video about a medical procedure. Right. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? They're just overzealous. Right. Yeah. We face the same issue. In order to try to reach our audience, sometimes we'll use Facebook ads. And when we use gay lesbian or LGBTQ in the ad, it's oftentimes we get slapped with this trying to target a specific audience that they don't want you to do that. And we're like, well, that's the person I'm trying to talk to. And I'm actually right. trying to do something good here. If you right. would just take the time to look at what our business is. Yeah. I mean, why are we immediately equated with like inappropriate? Right. That's right. what's weird is like, okay, I understand like you don't want to monetize videos that have murder in the title or that are like, you know what I mean? Like actually not advertiser friendly versus like, you know, why is the word lesbian automatically flagged? Why right. is that inappropriate? Right. Straight right. isn't flagged. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. It's just weird. Well, and I will say it's interesting that I have seen a number of other very sexualized videos on YouTube or 
very sexualized advertisements on Facebook and Twitter and even Instagram. And they're not targeting the LGBT community. They're targeting a straight demographic. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly okay to show a woman in a see-through t-shirt or a guy in a pair of super tight pants. And I'm you know, I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to balk at that. One. <laughs> <laughs> but, Some problems are okay. <laughs> you know, the, the the overt sexualization of things. Why is that okay? Whereas we're trying to talk to our demographic about to our peers, to the people that we want to connect with about something that's serious. Well, it doesn't have to be serious, but we want to talk about money right. and make it something that they are interested in, and that's just kind of. Well, being even, hidden behind a wall here. Yeah, you would have been, you know, you would have been demonetized just for having queer in the title, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so knowing what you know now and your experience with being on the Internet so prolifically, would you advise others follow in your footsteps? Yeah, um, I don't know, because I, I really just have kind of always been like, I'm going to tell the truth. And so like that kind of started out being like about sexuality and talking a lot about bisexuality and anti-slut shaming and like just sort of being as like, because I felt it was political to be openly bisexual and not care and be happy and not have like, you know, the YouTube channel has like never been like my tearful coming out. It's never been like, you know, anything that like it's very normalized on the channel. It's never been my narrative has never been like anything that I don't know. That was like, Oh, this is so tragic for me because of my sexuality. And so like, I tr- I've tried to do that with a lot of stuff. And then when it came to doing the money stuff, I was also like, okay, I'll just be really transparent, which is like embarrassing. And it has come to bite me in the ass and like, doesn't seem to be, you know, people see it as tacky people. I get a lot of unnecessary and unwanted comments. I get people like, because if, if, the more you share, the more people are like, oh, let me get up in your business and act like I know you <laughs> and tell you how to live your life and what to do. And they feel really comfortable doing that because you shared it. Um, right. And so it, it sometimes I do wish that I was just like a regular actress who didn't have to be on Instagram, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and like, but then I, it is nice because I connect with these, you know, the other side of it is you connect with people who are so touched by your stuff and feel so seen by it and like you get to really see the effects of your work which is super nice um but I don't know I mean I I never think of it as internet work because the internet could go away at like any time not that it will but like I have always instead of saying I'm a youtuber or internet famous or whatever I've always been like I'm a writer I'm an actress I'm a you know podcaster I'm a screenwriter I'm a what you know tv writer whatever um, producer, director, anything like that, because I don't want to lump it all into one name because then it you lose track of like what actual jobs you're doing and what you could do in the event of like needing, you know, need wanting to do other stuff. So it's kind of feels like if you are, you know, strive for a similar thing that I'm doing, I think you have to think of yourself as all of those or one of those more so than I want to be, you know, I want to be Instagram famous. Okay. But what does that mean? Like, are you, are you becoming a makeup artist and posting your makeup? Are you a stylist and posting your clothes? Are you a funny video editor? And so you're editing videos of your friends to post. Like what, what is your actual skill? If that makes sense. Right. No, totally. And it, I think what you're talking about here is the possibility that it can grow into so much more mm-hmm. than just 
what you're doing right now. And I think that's what most of us want, right? We, we start out by doing this on the internet, trying to gain our followers on whatever social media platform it is, but we hope that it grows into something more, that it can be something stable and enough to support us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think you got to think long-term because, you know, people were Viners and then Vine died. Um, <laughs> but instead of identifying as Viners, they should be identified as comedians or like, you know, something that can move platforms. Right. So yeah, I think this is a healthy conversation to have because I think especially now with YouTube blowing up the way it is and with podcasting becoming as popular as it is, I think there are a lot of people who are thinking, hey, I want to delve into that because there's obviously that's a path to success. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to to recognize just as in every industry, you know, there's a balance. There are the super successful people who are making most of the money and then the rest of us are, are still trying to you know, climb the ladder and getting whatever breadcrumbs we can until we actually reach that goal. Yeah, I mean, you got to have, you know, other stuff going. I don't know. I work on like 5,000 things at once, and then I just (laughs) hope that something hits. Like when I was a freelance reporter, people would go, oh, my God, you got this really amazing story in this really amazing place, you know, and I would be like, yeah, and I would it would be hard for me to feel good about it because I knew that there were like 15 stories that I had pitched before that that they had that like places had said no to. So people would go, oh, wow, that's so amazing. You did this. And I'd be like, yeah, but there's like 15 failures behind that. So I feel like you're like throwing stuff at the wall. And then and then when something hits, everyone's like, wow, you came out of nowhere with that. And it's like, did I? (laughs) Did I? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I Uh, I love the overnight success scenario. (laughs) Tenure overnight success. It's never like it's never an overnight. It's always that you were working on 15 things and then. You know, I have like multiple projects and then one thing just happens to hit and everyone's like, oh, and it's like, mm. you're so lucky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, oh, that kind of leads up us- this one thing that was so amazing and worked. I don't know. It was one of 12 ideas and that happened to be the one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that kind of leads us then to bad with money because you kind of made that another one of your projects, right? You said... I'm going to try this because I want to explain to people what, how I deal with money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had been, I had written that article and then I'd been approached by Panoply, um, the podcast network to, to maybe do a podcast with them. And we had talked about doing some kind of like LGBTQ podcast or some sort of like sexuality podcast, which I had been doing in my work. And, um, and I was like, you know, Um, I, I, not to say that that stuff isn't taboo, but I was like, I'm sort of, you know, known for talking about that stuff. And I was like, there's one thing that I, I actually do keep secret, even though my whole thing is like radical transparency. And that is my money situation. Cause at the time it was not good. I mean, it's not good now, but it wasn't good then much more so. And so I was like, I actually really am more secret. Like I'll tell you all the sex stories, but like, don't ask me anything about my bills. I'll cry. And so they were like, that's interesting. And so we just started this show that I would just be talking about my money problems because that was the real thing that made me like cringe and want to throw up and like made me scared. And I, and I've always kind of thought, I don't know, I don't have really good self-preservation. So I've always kind of, anytime something like freaks me out or is icky or is like, I don't, that seems bad. I don't want to get into that. In my mind, I go, okay, well, that's the thing I have to make my next thing about. Um, So like, it's, it's a, you know, it's a sign to me, like, if it's something you don't want to talk about, then that's the thing you should talk about. So 
I was like, let's do a money show. So then it started out just being me talking to people about money. And then as I learned more and more about my own money situation and other people's money situations, it sort of became clearer to me that it was a more of a social justice issue than I had previously realized. So then mm-hmm. seasons two and three of the podcast become like <laughs> increasingly socialist. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so then now it's, you know, I've, I've realized what my like political view on money is. And like I made the show, you know, kind of like the money show for the rest of us. You know, it's not it, it's often got a female or person of color or queer or all three or disabled or neuroatypical or whatever lens to to everything. Um, and that's, you know, by design, because I want it to be like money stuff and money advice and and talking to people who you wouldn't normally hear from. Right. So let me take a step back. Can I ask why was it easier for you to talk about? your sex life and not so easy to talk about your financial situation. Well, I say this, I say this in the book, but like at the end of the day, sex is cool. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and like everyone, and for me, it's also like, okay, so everyone, anyone who comes at me and is like biphobic or homophobic or whatever, I can go, you're a shitty person. Like, I don't care what you think you suck. And like, objectively you suck. and so like it doesn't affect me like someone could be like fuck you like dyke bitch and i'll be like yeah i am a dyke bitch goodbye like whatever but then like if um if someone came to me and was like you didn't use your like that thousand dollars that you just got correctly then i start crying because i i don't know if they're right or wrong versus like i you know if someone's like you're a slut i go okay like and today's tuesday whatever but like (laughs) But like, so I know that they're, they are wrong, but if it's like a money question, I don't know if they're wrong. They could be right. I could be an idiot. So that like really made me feel way more insecure than anything that had to do with like stuff that I guess I had grown pretty secure about. So was it coming from a place of, of self doubt about finances or was it coming from a place of, you feel dumb. Like you feel like I'm a dummy everyone knows more than me. And so you believe it. If someone says like, you know, bisexuality is wrong. I'm not going to like, you could tell me that 12 times a day all day. And I wouldn't believe you because that's insane. But if someone's like, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. Your money situation means you're an idiot. I'll be like, yeah, probably. (laughs) And then I start crying. Well, it's, I think we, one, we're not educated, whether it's our parents or the education, failing education system uh, doesn't educate us. And then, there's so many options out there and we're always comparing ourselves to other people and saying, oh, there's success and I'm not. Right. Even though our backgrounds and family situations and everything are so different. Like, for instance, right, like if I like my comedy partner and I make a similar amount of, of money, let's say I probably I have one more book than her. So I've probably made more money. But that's money. That's not like one net worth. That's income. And two, that doesn't take into account. So like we've made the same amount of money, but I had $40,000 in debt that she didn't have. So we made the same income, but I paid back my debt, causing me to have a lower quote unquote income. I also have family obligations, which cut into my income. So by the end of the day, even though like objectively people would go, well, you made the same amount of money. We really didn't. And like, and so, but in the end, people just look at my income and go, oh, you must be wealthy versus like taking into account the other things besides just the income. That makes makes a lot of sense. I, I think that a lot of people, they want 
to automatically assume whether when we're internet famous or we have some sort of platform that we should have all these showy displays of, of our lives, right? We need to be driving the right car, the having the right townhome or apartment or whatever. Sort of, but then if you do, they judge you because then they, they, you know, they give you a hard time about it. And especially if you have a money show, like, you know, it was funny, like comments, I, I bought a painting. Um, I went to like an art auction, right? During end of season one of Bad With Money. And I bought a painting and I posted on Instagram, like, I went to this art auction and I bought this painting. It's so exciting. And like all the comments were like, next season on Bad With Money, like making fun <laughs> of me. You know what I mean? And right. I was like, sorry, my dog is walking around everywhere. Buddy, you want to sit down? Sweetie, you want to sit? No, you just want to clack your nails all over the floor? <laughs> what are you thinking, doggo? You want to come up here? Okay, my love, come here. <laughs> just wants to sit right on my lap. There's a whole house, but let's do that. <laughs> That's okay. called love. You have two beds, my sweet. Okay. So, yeah. So, you know, people, like, you open the door to people sort of commenting and making fun. So, like, even the assumption that I have money and that I'm, like, buying, you know, art, like, that I'm excited about, they were still like, oh, 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 girl, you know? <laughs> well, I, I do think it's, it's interesting that David and I are, we go by the debt-free guys as well. And so many people assume that we're poor, that we can't, whenever we go to do anything, whenever we go on a vacation or we buy something nice, they're like, well, how can you afford that if you don't have any debt? I'm like, well, <laughs> there's cash, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think also on the flip side, we've, we've been able to focus our money spending on things that really bring us value in our lives that we really enjoy. So we will... We don't have a new car. I mean, we, our car is a 2006 Mini Cooper. Yeah, and well, you prioritize. Right, exactly. But we take a vacation and we go to Europe for th four weeks and everybody says, oh, you're rich. Right. Like, no, I just don't have a car payment. Yeah. <laughs> or a mortgage or two kids. Right. Ugh. Ugh. So, two male so, incomes and no kids. <laughs> so you said earlier that you, before you started the podcast that you sort of felt like everybody was smarter than you about money. Now that you're three seasons into this and you've got the book coming out, what percentage of the population would you say is actually smarter than you about money? Everyone, literally everyone. I don't know. I don't know anything. Like it's so bizarre. The premise of the show is that I'm a dummy. And then I think people are just so desperate for like millennial voices on money that like I get called in for like talking heads as like an ex, you know, an expert. Oh, we want you to come speak to our bank as an expert. Oh, we want you to come whatever. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> like guys, like, uh, I, okay. But like, okay, if you're going to pay me, sure. But I, my conclusion will be, uh, no one knows anything and everything's bad. The end. So I give like, I have like a better presentation than that where I talk about like, you know, how alienated we are by traditional money media and like the systemic problems we're coming up against and how like, you know, you need to take into account different lifestyles and um, different uh, backgrounds and how you can't just give one size fits all advice. Like I have a, an actual presentation that I do that, that I hope is helpful. But yeah, it is like interesting because they go, oh, money expert. And I go, no, like <laughs> <laughs> money unexpert. <laughs> yeah, like the point is, well, it was, it was interesting, like, I talked to other money experts, and they're sort of like, oh, you're the, like, millennial money expert, so, like, what do you think of this? Like, how do, you know, where's your money invested? Where's this? Where's that? 
And I was like, uh, look, like I, I know I can tell you, but like, I also don't know if that's the best. And I don't know if I would recommend that to other people. And they were like, oh, so you're like still bad with money. And I was like, yes. Like, <laughs> Have you heard my show? That is the <laughs> premise. Like, I now have a retirement fund, which is crazy. I didn't have that when I started. And I like have a, an accountant rather than just like showing up at an H&R block crying once a year, <laughs> um, holding an accordion folder and going, help me. Um, and then, and then, yeah, like, so little things have gotten better and changed definitely. And I like try to have savings and I've paid off half of my student loans. So that's pretty cool. Um, nice. But yeah, but I'm not like, I'm not going to, you know, when these experts, other experts try to talk to me and they go, oh, well, what have you invested in or this or that? It's like, I, I can't, like, I'm not equipped to like tell people what to invest in. Mm-hmm. Yes. You, know that, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not Absolutely. one of those. I'm not going to be like, hey guys, like, here's the, you know, the next great stock. Like, that's not the kind of person I am. And I think they're very confused by that. <laughs> right. And I think that when people assume that we're a money expert, that we know everything. We can you know, predict the future. Right. We're a walking investopedia and we uh, can tell them every single thing there is to know about money. Buy gold. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> buy gold. <laughs> no idea. My grandfather would be so proud of you right now. Exactly. Get a house or don't. I don't know. Right. So let me ask, why do you think that there is such a percentage of the population, typically younger, that is turned off by the traditional financial media? It's condescending. Um, It talks down to you. It doesn't take into account your actual real life. The way that they tell you to do things and then shame you for not like starting your retirement account in kindergarten when like your parent, you had a single parent home that was like barely surviving on, you know, your mom's multiple jobs or whatever. Like they just don't like they, they, all the advice is basically for like middle to upper class white people, able-bodied, you know, largely straight cis white people. And so, you know, one of the greatest things that I learned in like the first season was I had like a disability expert on and we talked about how disabled people are legally not allowed to save more than $2,000 or else their benefits get cut. And that's a, that's a thing that started in like the eighties and they just haven't updated it. Cause in their words, my like friends words, multiple disabled friends of mine, no one cares. Um, and so, but there was like this thing that I saw on Twitter that was so great where it was like this finance woman expert. And she was like, by 35, you should have saved this amount. And then this disability expert underneath went like, Hey, like this advice doesn't help anyone because we actually are not legally allowed to save. Like you're really just aiming this at one part of the population and alienating like a larger part, um, you know, especially because like of the wage gap and and the wage gap for women of color and the even larger wage gap for trans women of color and how a lot of queer people work under the table for cash and all this kind of stuff. And so like, it was just, that advice applies to like two out of 10 people. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so everyone else just, so I think we all like hear stuff like that and we're like, whatever, because you're like, it doesn't take into account my life. It doesn't apply to me. You know, there's no, it just seems classist. Like there's no, like you can tune it out, all of it. You start to tune out all financial advice because you're just like, who is this for? Right. 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 So that's why I think this new gig economy is, is awesome for many 
topics, but especially money, because now you can really niche down and connect with your community better than you ever could before, because before you had four channels, right? So you had to speak to the the broadest demographic. Yeah. Um, but now we've got these all these opportunities to really niche down and, and talk almost one-on-one with the community. Mm-hmm. The best people to talk to are, are the people that are in your same demographic. Like it really helps to talk to other black women about money if you're a black woman or other queer people or other trans people just because they'll have the most similar lifestyle to you most likely. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then the, then their advice is a little bit more applicable to your real life situation as opposed to some white man in New York City right. with a six-figure income talking about how you should have started at 20 years old with right. a retirement account. But then no one, no one takes that really into account and like no one, I don't know, no one like takes any of that seriously. I don't know if you guys get this, but there's like a lot of stuff that's like, oh, um, you know, uh, you're just having a victim mentality and you need to like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and blah, blah, blah. But like some people don't like, this may be a stupid metaphor, but some people don't even have boots. (laughs) Stop talking about bootstraps. Right. 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 No, we actually haven't experienced that a whole lot. We have received some pushback. By and large, we, we get a lot of positive feedback, um, both from not our community as well as our community. But every now and then we do get some people in our community who kind of want to chastise us for taking advantage of the community and when we shouldn't be making money off the community. And uh-huh. um, we have to remind them that no gay person has ever given us money that we know of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> we're still looking to make some money. Right. Exactly. <laughs> And I think people just are uncomfortable talking about money. They like hope, you know, they don't, you know, there's the whole thing of like, don't tell our secrets. Right. <laughs> like well, just leave, just, you know what I mean? I don't know. And that's, that's what your very first episode was about, mm-hmm. right? The whole idea of being comfortable talking about sex, but not talking about money. Mm-hmm. Yes. That like, so I had, um, I went to a coffee shop and I asked people what, what's your favorite sex position? And everyone was like, sure, sure, sure. Happy to answer. And then I asked, uh, how much money is in your bank account? And they were like, that's personal. Get away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. So. And so why do you think for those individuals, there is that contradiction? Um, I, again, like, I think that you, you seem cool, like, you know, but money isn't cool. Money is boring. Money is, you know, everyone wants to be seen as like living their dreams. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I have $9. I have $9 in my bank account, but I'm an artist. Um, and I'm living my dreams. And like talking about the money aspect isn't important. Like, I used to get so mad at my dad, because whenever I would write an article for a publication, I would go, Oh, hey, I wrote this article for Cosmo or Glamour or whatever. And my dad would go, that's so great. What are they paying you? And I used to get furious because I would be like, <laughs> come on. Like, I don't care what they're paying me. This is about like looking like a really cool, important journalist. And he, <laughs> and like, I used to get so mad about it. And now it's like, well, it shouldn't have been his first question, but it could be on the list of questions. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. Well, and just kind of going back to the idea of being internet famous and not getting paid for it mm-hmm. in some ways. Do you think that that's something that maybe some of these platforms are taking advantage of? Like, for example, John and I used to write for, um, I'll just say it. We used to write for Huffington Post and Huffington Post doesn't pay their contributors a penny. And yet they're making hundreds of millions of dollars a year off of the people who write for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So are we kind of in some ways 
reinforcing that with with what we're doing by because we want to be on some of these famous platforms? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say don't write for free, but I think don't write for free. Uh, even <laughs> just ask for like $20. I don't know, because it's this thing like my girlfriend's a, a stylist and a designer and she was working for some people that have money and she was like, I should give them um, like a huge discount because I'm so excited that they're going to wear my clothes. And then her friends were like, no, don't do that. Charge them full price. So they feel like they're getting a really quality product because they have the money to pay for it. These people. And she's just like so overwhelmed with gratitude that someone would wear her design on a red carpet. She's not thinking clearly. And so it's this thing of like, of like, oh my God, I'm, you know, I used to write for these places and I would be like, I can't believe they're even running my article. I would pay them. But I feel like unless you ask for a certain amount of money or unless you ask for any money, then it doesn't have to be quality, if that makes sense. Like they don't feel like they're getting like a quality writer. People want to think that they're paying, you know, that's why people spend so much money on designer clothes. They want to Mm -hmm. feel like they're paying for something better or good. It's financial psychology. Mm -hmm. It kind of twisted logic, but it works. (laughs) Yeah. So like, it lets them know that they can get away with not paying you versus like if right. you go, I need, I, I need $50, even just whatever, 50 or $25 or whatever. And then they go, Oh, well, I guess we should pay her because she like, you know, knows, I don't know. Or they'll say no. And then you go somewhere else with it. Exactly. It, it is interesting. John and I have had a little bit of similar experiences as you. We've had multi-billion dollar financial services companies reach out to us and ask us to basically do consulting work for them or, show them how to connect with the LGBT community, mm-hmm. but they don't want to pay us a penny for it. Oh, <laughs> and especially just... marginalized people, especially. I've always right. talked about how, you know, we're expected to go into a job and be a professional gay or a professional black person or a professional trans person. Like, it's so crazy. Like, like my job, when I would work at these video companies, my job would be my job. And then my job that was unpaid, my second job would be professional person to go over everyone's scripts to make sure they're not homophobic. No one else had to do that. Why do I have two jobs? Right. Um, and why don't I get paid for both? <laughs> and I don't get paid. I get paid for one, maybe. But I mean, they take advantage, right? So like, you know, all these people come out here, they're dying for work. They're 22 years old. They don't, they've never had a job before. They'll sign whatever contract just so that their parents think that they're successful. And then, and then they don't look at it. They don't look into their 401k. They don't look into anything. They just go, oh my God, I'll just work here. They work, you know, 7,000 hour weeks. They come in on weekends. They try to get stuff done because they care about the quality of the videos they're putting out. And then they, and then the company goes, look, we're not going to pay you more, but we will give you free beer. And they go, cool. (laughs) You will maybe once a month get to meet an up and coming songwriter. Oh, I love it. You know what I mean? Like it's so it's it's, appearance of excitement getting so and like, Oh, but you get the name recognition of working for us Mm -hmm. and it's like, okay, sure. But you're not making like the other people that are doing as much work as you are, are winning Emmys. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's just so they just are getting such good labor for so small money and because the demand to work there is so high and until like everybody is like, Hey, fuck you there. It's just going to keep going. Right. So I want to tackle a little bit and maybe David and I live in a bubble and maybe you're part of that bubble, but 
we talk about finance all day long. We know tons of people who talk about, write about podcasts about finance. We see it everywhere. With such so much financial information out there, why do you think Americans are still struggling to improve their financial situation? Because there's systemic issues. I mean, there's no, uh, you're never going to, there's almost no economic mobility. Um, I mean, there's so, like, you can do as much individual stuff for yourself as you, as you can or want. But like, at the end of the day, there's so many historical, I don't know, there's so many historical factors and things that like aren't taken into account and, and government hurdles to jump and they make it, they make it hard on purpose. I mean, rent rises, wages stay low, health insurance isn't available or is expensive. Uh, you know, you have, you save up a little money and then you're like one fall or cancer diagnosis from total ruin. Like, it's just like your car breaks down and you can't fix it and you can't go to work. Like, it's just like things pile on top of each other. And there's like constant, everyone takes it on isolated. So everyone goes, oh, I'm a fuck up rather than like, wait a minute. Why is this happening to so many of us? I mean, there's that statistic that like nowhere in America can a full-time working person take afford a two-bedroom apartment. And then, you know, there's like all these laws, right? So I, I read, um, so you your wages are too low, so you can't afford a two-bedroom apartment. So you get a one-bedroom apartment. And if you have, in some places, if you have a male and female child of a certain age, they can't share a bedroom. Like, so, so child services, if they are checking on you and come in and see that like your male and female child are sharing a bedroom, they'll take them away. And like, how are you supposed to, so like you can afford a one bedroom. You're like making, you're like, I'm doing it. I'm making it. Like I have my kids, whatever. And then, and then you're like, you're, there's just like a million ways to punish if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. And there's no help. (laughs) So like I, it's just like a never ending bureaucratic maze. And I understand. And like, I read this amazing book called $2 a day, um, which is an incredible book. And it's just at the end, and it's like presents this huge labyrinth. And then at the end of it are just like average Americans who have lost their jobs or who are waiting in lines or who are turned away from services that they actually deserve to have. And they're just tired. They're just like tired and they just cry. And like, if I go to the grocery store and have an awkward interaction with a cashier, like I can't leave my house. But like these people like are like go out every day and like debase themselves and try to like fight for stuff and and just like are so beaten down and they just do it again, do it again, do it again. And it's like it needs to be bigger than just individual. It can't just be individual change. I think a lot of what you're talking about causes a lot of people to to give up. Of course. Right. They just I I can't win. I know I'm not going to win. So I'm just going to stay in this place Uh and try to find a place that's as comfortable as possible. Uh And and more often than not, that means that they don't want or don't take the time to find out how they can improve or what kind of financial education that would maybe make their lives just a little bit better. Uh Right. So if Gabby Dunn ruled the world, what would you, (laughs) or when, um, what, what would you propose be changed? Um, I mean, I just try to eliminate the shame associated with it. I think there's so many problems and then they don't even start to get solved because people are ashamed. 
And because people take things personally and think that it's an individual failure when it's not. And then other people pile on. So other people who are like born on second base and think they hit a double are like, oh, shame on you. Like you, you are bad and you did this wrong and you're a dummy and blah, blah, blah. And like, I would just love to eliminate all of that. Like it's hard enough, like stop with the additional emotional trauma on top of everything. Absolutely. Do you think that there are unique challenges for the queer community that maybe other communities don't have? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think like, I think we're like pretty uh, enamored with weddings still in a way that like, but I, but then I say in the book that like, you know what, have the biggest wedding of all time. <laughs> you, <laughs> you've earned it. Um, and then obviously, of course, like I consider like in the book, I talk about like, you know, in vitro fertilization or adoption or surrogacy or like, you know, my partner and I are both cis women. So how's that going to work out? We can't just like have a baby. And there's also, you know, a lot of trans women and trans women of color have shorter life expectancies. So it's, which is horrendous. Um, And it's hard to get someone like that to think about retirement. There's, you know, obviously trans specific healthcare things and gay specific healthcare. You know, there's like, like, is prep covered? Is it not covered? Like, you know, all this kind of stuff that is specific to our community that I think straight people wouldn't even think about, or they wouldn't, or like straight cis people wouldn't understand or, or, but like, in my mind, I always say they don't have to understand. They just have to like respect it and get on board. Like they don't have to, it doesn't have to make sense to you. It, you just have to respect that it makes sense to us and then be like, okay. So I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of really specific problems that go beyond marriage that I think like, in my mind, I've said this before, we're like, marriage makes the most sense to straight people. They're like, we have that too. So when it was like gay marriage was getting legalized, which was like amazing, they were like, yeah, we love that. But like other stuff, they're sort of like, but why? Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think obviously people talk about, you know, two, two wage gap, two female incomes. And like, what does that look like? And you know, how do you, how do you deal with like parental leave if people are, you know, a same sex couple? And I don't know, there's just like so many weird specifics that aren't even thought about because everything is built on this like heterosexual idea. So there's like, you know, there's just so many life things that are seen as like, and then this, and then this, and then this, and that's the life cycle. But it like, isn't the same for us, basically. So let me ask you a question. In attending FinCon and interacting with other niches, for example, mommy bloggers or Christian personal finance experts, especially the African-American women community, it seems like those communities, there's something that goes on that they love to share and, and impart that kind of information as to how to live a little bit better financially with each other. Mm -hmm. They share coupons, they share recipes, they tell each other about the apps that they're using. Mm -hmm. There's just this kind of bubbling under conversation that's always going on in these communities. Mm -hmm. But it seems like our community is still very much anchored in politics, pop culture, 
sexualization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you go to most of the leading LGBT websites, and you know, for example, if you go to the Advocate, vast majority of the pictures on there are going to be pictures that are sexualized. Mm-hmm. And do you think that there's some way to get our community to start having that kind of conversation? That you know, if you just use this app, you would save five dollars a week, and that mm-hmm. could. will make a huge difference in your life. How do we have those kinds of conversations? I mean, I've heard people talking about, I've heard gay men, friends of mine, talking about the way that gay media portrays, gay male media specifically portrays like all their cover, cover boys are like ripped white boys with abs, basically. You know what I mean? Like, yes. And it's that kind of. You're (laughs) welcome. Like, it's that kind of thing versus like the action, you know, or even like, they'll put like a ripped straight guy on the cover of the advocate or out or whatever before they put like an actual like trans person doing good work. You know what I mean? Like, right. It's this kind of thing, like wanting to seem glamorous and think about all the TV. I mean, the L word, none of, I mean, they all had jobs kind of, but they all lived in like gorgeous homes in LA and it's like, what? Um, <laughs> right. And I think it like, you know, you want to be portrayed as, like glamorous and cool and you know i think a lot of us come from like shitty backgrounds in like shitty states Mm -hmm. and then we want to be like we got to new york and la and now we're like so cool and living the high life and blah 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 and maybe that's also i'm just spitballing but maybe it's like we're all like sad on the inside (laughs) or like have been through trauma or like have had definitely like some sort of struggle and so we're or like at least some sort of like emotional ennui or whatever. So we're like, I don't know, just like uh, buy something. Um, which is how <laughs> You're I'm describing like, John and I from 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Um, which is how I feel. Like I'm I'm like, I don't know, everything's sad, a purchase. And so so I think like, I don't know. But I also know that in other marginalized communities, in that book, $2 a day, they talk about it about, or, and there's this um, article that was called what the rich won't tell you. And it was kind of like, both of those things are basically say that like rich people are the ones who don't want to talk about money. So like rich white people are like very scared to talk about money versus like, you know, small communities of color. They have, there's no, there's less shame involved. Cause like everyone's kind of on the same playing field in their neighborhood. And like, right. you can just like, you're sort of like, uh, you know, oh, I did this today. I went down to the, to like the unemployment office and I talked to this person, blah, blah, blah. And like everyone kind of relates to you and, and is like, at least in, in, in the, in the book and the article, they talk about how like, there's no shame. Like you've seen each other in the, in the line, you know, at the welfare office, you've seen each other, uh, like, ha- you know, I don't know. Like, it's just like, there's, there's no posturing versus like, in in maybe other communities or in in the queer community which is probably more spread out i'm just guessing like you know we don't all live in one area unless i guess you count weho but i live in silver lake so like see i'm not even part of it um that uh there's not as much opportunity for us to like talk to each other or see each other's vulnerable lives does that make Mm -hmm. sense that's true it does and it makes me excited about the stuff that you're doing and the stuff that we're doing thankfully because we're doing it (laughs) and then the the more of the lgbt people who are starting to have the financial discussion because 
I think, you know, to answer my own question from earlier, how do we start changing these things? I think the first step in starting to change those things is that we as a community start talking about it Mm -hmm, Um, and then we help each other out and then we lift each other up. And then at that point, maybe we have more influence that we can change some of the systemic structural challenges. For sure. And, you know, in the cross sections of those communities, like, you know, like uh, black lesbians or Latino gay guys or, you know, what, you know, Asian bisexuals or whatever, like it's the, the cross section too is like, it, it needs to be taken into account as well. Because I think like we separate ourselves into different identities and there's no like, you know, cross section of like this advice might actually work for this type of LGBTQ person, but not this type or, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's just, it just needs the advice and the the sharing and stuff needs to be more um, more aimed at different people rather than just like I mean right now it's just aimed at like rich old white cis <laughs> straight <laughs> men so you know anybody who can do anything for another group or the rest of us is greatly welcome to do so <laughs> <laughs> exactly right and I I guess one of the things that I love that you're doing is you're saying. Okay, I did this. I, I I fucked up with my money, and this is what I did. I'm trying to learn from it. Maybe you can learn from it too. You know, and I think that that's you know, uh, John and I often talk about this. We go into an event or a party or over to someone's house for dinner, and it seems like there's always this almost I don't want to say one upmanship, but this constant conversation about how amazing my life is because mm-hmm. you know we we show it on Facebook and Instagram and then we've got to talk to each other about it but nobody says well I'd love to be able to do that but you know what I've got $70,000 in student loan debt so I'm paying that off first right and no nobody ever wants to say that cuz you're like the Debbie Downer in the conversation mm-hmm. but if all of us pretend that we have these fabulous lives what happens to us when we get to the point where we can no longer sustain it Well, we never had to, I think a lot of us never had to think about that. I think there's like such violence against the community and, and the AIDS crisis and all this stuff that like a lot of LGBTQ people were just like, I'll probably die at 40. Like, do you know what I mean? Like none of Mm -hmm. us. Absolutely. And then we were like given, oh, now you'll live longer. And we're all like, "Mm, what? (laughs) I don't have the money. I do now. (laughs) I didn't really account for this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's sort of a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, before when we were just worried about living. We were worried being, about day to day. Right. right. And now and now we have the luxury to some extent to start talking about money. So now we need to start talking about money. Yeah. But I think we a lot of us still live with the mental mentality of like, I don't know, I could die tomorrow, whatevs. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which it's hard to get rid of. It's hard to un unwire that. Well, and I, I 100% agree with you. We talk about that a lot on, on various platforms. And I think that's part of the reason why, especially gay white men, sort of have led this charge over the years of we must live fabulously because tomorrow we will die. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's trying to compete with that. And like you said, we're not dying at 35 and 40 years old. We're now living until we're 70 or 80 years. And so we can't have that sort of carpe diem mentality anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But it's hard to to unwrap all of that, especially when that's how it was for so long. Exactly. And then if you do try to unwrap that, then people are like, oh, like David David said, you're a Debbie Downer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they shame you for it, for trying to bring awareness to something that most people should be thinking about, you know? Right. Right. Well, it's <laughs> like the, you said. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the thing of like, we have these big, amazing, fabulous pride parades, 
which I love, but we also like should address the smaller things too. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think this is, you know, if the idea is to talk about it more in our community, I think your book is coming out at a great time. Um, Your book is going to be called Bad With Money, The Imperfect Art of Getting Your Financial Shit Together. Comes out January 1st, available for (laughs) (laughs) pre-order. Plug, plug, plug. We've got our copy ordered. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Of course. Then we can give a verified review after we read it. (laughs) <laughs> this is like gold. Um, so uh, is your book similar to your podcast? And these are all the mistakes that I've made. And hopefully you can learn from my situation. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, it goes into stuff a little bit deeper. Um, and it's a little more memoirish, but it, it's cool because I get to go into stuff. Like my favorite chapter, I do a whole thing about mental health and finances. Um, and that's like one of my favorite chapters. And then there's, you know, there, there's a lot of queer specific advice. There's a lot of stuff about like, you know, how the system is sort of in need of a big uh, overhaul. Um, but there is also like, here's how maybe you should look into getting a credit card. But also credit cards are racist. <laughs> you know? like, so it's a real humdinger. <laughs> I love it. So would you say that it's for the broader queer community or would it be for more for a slice of the queer community no i think it's for yeah i think it i mean i just got a really really nice review from a place that i don't know anything about books so i was like this seems nice and simon and schuster were very excited about it so i guess it's important but (laughs) um but yeah the the review was like very very kindly was like it this is a very intersectional book this is very good for the lgbtqia community and like they mentioned it in the review which was super nice they like you know don't have because like it's like oh it's a millennial money book or whatever they didn't have to specifically mention that aspect of it but they did and my girlfriend was like oh they get you they get what you're doing and i was like (laughs) i hope you know i'm glad it comes through yeah nice congratulations on that thanks Sure. So where all can our listeners find Gabby Dunn since you're everywhere? <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, GabbyDunn.com slash Bad With Money book is where you can pre-order the book. Um, Bad With Money is a podcast. That's wherever podcasts are. Uh, and then I am at Gabby Road, G-A-B-Y-R-O-A-D on Instagram. And then I'm at Gabby Dunn on Twitter. But Twitter is a cesspool of garbage. So who knows if I'll be there? <laughs> I remember I I did see something you posted that uh, on Twitter, but I I will tell our listeners that Gabby's Instagram stream is or feed is one of the few that I actually check on a regular basis. Oh, thank you. I, well, and I I love your pictures because you'll have like one picture that is so incredibly stylish and you know that you're in front of a camera and then you right next to it you have another where you and some friends are being super goofy and i love that because most most of the time you go through some of these actress actor uh feeds and it's just glamour 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 you know and Mm -hmm. you don't ever get to see them on the real life side and i love that you also put the real life side into it thank you i really appreciate it you bet yeah i I had to get back i did this might be funny to your listeners i left twitter well i i locked my twitter and then i I made my bio, this place is for Nazis and transphobes. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Simon and Schuster like emailed and was like, hi. You have to change it. So, <laughs> um, you're promoting a book, so you actually can't do that. And I was like, oh, but can't I? And they were like, um, you can't. And I was like, got it, got it, got it. So now yeah. I'm like back on Twitter and I had to like change my bio to be like, buy my book. 
<laughs> it was like that for like a week before like the publisher was like gabby like we get it we know who you are cut it out no. right. Fine. pr 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 yeah, like counterpoint it is for nazis and transphobes We're like no no we know but just can you and i was like fine so I'm a delight to have as a client. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like, it. Right. like you need like, your own PR assigned specialist. God, it was so funny because I saw like all the emails in the chain and it was like them talking to like my publicist and my manager being like, hi, um, so gently, uh, Gabby has closed her Twitter and changed her bio to this place is for Nazis and transphobes. And we were just wondering like how to best approach her about this. <laughs> and I was like, Don't. Why does anyone represent me? <laughs> they should have reached out to you on Twitter. Right. I would have seen it because I was off. But now I'm off again. Whatever. That's awesome. Yeah. So any any final thoughts you want to impart on our listeners? Um, no, that's it. Get my book, tell me what you think of it. Get it and then post about it on your Tumblr or your Twitter or your Instagram and give it an honest review. And tag me. But if it's too mean, don't tag me. But if it's kind of mean and nice, do tag me. But if it's really nice, tag me twice, two times. <laughs> and, I, and I would urge you to get the book and do share your thoughts on social media because as I... Th- to me, the takeaway from this discussion mostly is that our community needs to start talking about money much more than we than we are, because we'll never be able to change the systemic problems if we're not able to first change our community first. Right. Yeah, I mean, thank you guys for doing what you do. Because like I said, I I googled queer money podcast, and you were like the only one that came up. Uh, And you know, it's, it's important. So I appreciate like what you guys do too. And for talking to me for the book. Absolutely. Thank you. We appreciate it. It's an honor to be a part of it. Oh, of course. And um, yeah, and and I'm glad that your audience, you know, cares at all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they do they do oh it's hey, lovely it's so lovely we all gotta we all gotta start caring about this oh my dog just made a little noise oh how cute <laughs> um, I thought we were gonna say he made something else <laughs> <laughs> just like yipped I don't know if you heard it anyway no no, no. He just well thank you so much for it. coming on our podcast yeah. we appreciate it yeah. yeah thank you for having me I'll talk soon thank you bye Thank you, Gabby, for joining us on this episode of Queer Money and sharing your fascinating insights into the financial condition of our community. No doubt your book is selling amazingly well in its first few weeks. Thanks, too, for your amazing money podcast and all you do for the LGBT community. So, one more time, this episode of Queer Money was brought to you by the Debt-Free Guys Credit Card Payoff Course, which is available for purchase starting next week, January 13, and will only be available for purchase through January 21st. So don't miss your chance to get the step-by-step strategy that helped us pay off $51,000 in credit card debt and has saved countless others thousands of dollars as well. One person, as we've said several times, went through our strategy and saved $150 a month and a total of $2,250 total to put towards their debt and pay off their debt even faster. So look out for that coming out next week. Until next time. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.